Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, even when we don't feel like it. Amen? All right. I am, uh, for those of you, I know we have some guests here this morning. I am Gary Yoakum. I am privileged to be one of the elders here at Oak Park Baptist Church. I will be preaching today, as you heard Joshua mention in his prayers. The regular guy is coming back from spring break. He's traveling today, and he'll be back in the pulpit next week for Easter Sunday. Uh, to preach to us about the resurrection, and we look forward to that. I am a, a word of confession here. Um, in some circles, I am known as being fairly intense. <laughs> Maybe in more circles than some. I'm okay with that. I just want you to know that uh, uh, I, my wife and I are a fan of the Marvel movies. Now, not the spinoff, not the Guardians of the Galaxy kind of stuff, the real stuff. The real stuff, all right? Captain America, Iron Man, those guys, those guys. We're a fan of it. Last night, as a matter of fact, Debbie and I were watching Thor Ragnarok. <clears throat> it's true. We love it. We enjoy it. It's, uh, it, it. It really is an interesting spin, if you've seen it, because there's a lot of humor in it, and it's really good, and... Um, there is, of course, in, in Thor's world, the world of Asgard, there is um, Thor, who is the heir apparent to the throne. There is Loki, his um, beautifully, cunningly evil brother, who is marvelous in the movies. And, uh, of course, there is Odin, who is king. Odin has now passed. And um, we think about the king of Asgard, and we think of those things. And today, I want us to look in the gospel and see a very different kind of king. You would open your scriptures to... John chapter 18, if you're not sure uh, where that is, if you're new to the scriptures, that's okay. Go about the middle of your Bible and keep turning it to your left. Turn it to your left and you'll come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And uh, if you get to the book of Acts, you've gone too far, and go to chapter 18. That's where we'll be here in a few moments. Before we do that, I want to... Uh, Take a moment of uh, privilege, if I might. I have a colleague whose wife is in the hospital at Floyd and uh, probably will not come out. So I want to pray for him and for her here for just a moment before I get started. Father, I lift before you Bruce Farnsley and his wife, Barbara. They've been married for almost 30 years. And Bruce, a faithful brother, serving in a small and mercy-minded church in New Albany, Pearl Baptist. And, and um, Barbara has some ongoing, some, some long-term heart health issues and now with the onset of flu and pneumonia, it is uh, causing problems that may uh, result in her death. Rejoice, God, this morning in her salvation and the fact that her days uh, in eternity will be spent with you and with Jesus. Pray for Bruce and for his family. His son is preaching right now. And I pray for him as he stands in that pulpit with this on his mind. And I pray that you would be glorified in it, Father. Give comfort where comfort is needed, Father, in your presence, always powerful and special in people's lives. And so I praise you for that and ask you to bless the Farnsleys in this hard hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus is a different kind of king. And I want to look at him this morning in the standpoint of, of royalty and the standpoint of kingship because from about the middle of John 18 through the middle of John chapter 19 and the story of Jesus' arrest and 
and uh, crucifixion. In the middle of that, about the middle of that first chapter, we'll see the word king mentioned ten different times. It's part of the debate between Pilate and Jesus. It's part of the background of the charges against Jesus. And you'll see the word kingdom mentioned three times in there. So that's sort of the royal motif that I want us to bring today as we think about uh, the cross. In chapter 18, we will learn that the Jewish leaders, I'm just setting this all up. I'll get to more of the preaching component in a moment. Um, Learned that the Jewish leaders conspired with Judas to betray Jesus, and they arranged for some Roman soldiers to come and arrest him. You know the story. You're familiar with it. In the middle of chapter 18, Jesus appears before Pilate after being handed off from Annas to Caiaphas and then to Pilate. He gets to Pilate, and Pilate is the appointed governor from Rome in that region. Pilate would be the one that will have to make the final decision with respect to Jesus' guilt and his execution. And in this encounter, while this is going on, this very first encounter between the two of them, we'll we'll see it in a moment, Jesus refers to a truth that he came to bear witness about. And Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? It's fundamental for our thinking. Jesus was witnessing about a truth that he was God's Messiah, that he had come to reconcile sinners to God. Jesus was speaking theologically about a gospel truth. Pilate was responding as the way that so much of those who are not followers of Christ want to respond. He was responding philosophically, trying to work out what is a relative truth. Pilate did not want to address the theological truth about Jesus. And the chief accusers of Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders, would not accept the truth that Jesus came to bear witness about. That was the rub for them. The rub for the Jewish leaders was that Jesus was claiming equal status with God. And in doing so, they cried out blasphemy. And in their law, it would be considered blasphemy if it wasn't Jesus that was doing that. But their main issue was Jesus was coming and he was challenging their authority and he was challenging their prestige. They were threatened by Jesus. The truth for them was they wanted Jesus gone. They could not legally execute Jesus. But the Jews, but the Romans could. That's why they brought him to Pilate. And we get into chapter 19, we'll begin to see the pain and the shame that Jesus endured so that you and I could be reconciled to God. If I were to summarize that, I might do it this way as we look at these two chapters this morning. Jesus suffered an undeserved punishment for the pardon of an undeserving people. That's grace. On the Christian calendar, the Sunday before Easter is often referred to as Palm Sunday. That's today. That title recalls a time when Jesus returned to Jerusalem for the very final time before as he would be crucified, all of this fulfilling what had been ordained for for him uh, in his coming. Joshua shared with us about last week. Most of your English Bibles, if you look in that section of the Gospels, you will find a subtitle that's called the Triumphal Entry. Always found that a little bit ironic if you think about it. What's triumphal about coming and dying on a cross? In our way of thinking, that doesn't sound very triumphant, does it? It sounds to us like he got whipped. But at the end of the day, we realize it was triumphal because there's a royal nomenclature taking place there. There's this notion about the king coming. But it's also triumphal because though he died on the cross, he rose again. And he triumphed for you and me over sin and over Satan, so that we might have everlasting life in heaven with Jesus. 
forever. When people heard that Jesus was coming, they flocked to see him in that last entry into Jerusalem. And you know the account. They, they wanted to give him what was then a traditional royal welcome. They laid their cloaks on the ground that he was riding in on, and some threw palm branches, thus the nomenclature of Palm Sunday. This was the stuff that they did for royal. It was, it was the royal subject's opportunity to pay homage to the royal figure who was coming. The Jerusalem crowd did that for Jesus, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in John's gospel, we read about those people describing Jesus as the king of Israel. Well, what we don't read about in any of the gospels, at least that I could find, is Jesus describing himself in that way. I'll say more in a moment. He's a different kind of king. I do believe, though, that this, this triumphal entry occasion is the only time in the gospel accounts when Jesus deliberately allowed them to worship who he was. If you remember over and over and over and over again in the accounts, he would say, shh, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. They wanted him to be king because of what they wanted a king to do, and that is to remove them from Roman rule. Jesus knew this. He would not take that sort of crown for himself. Even on this grand occasion to fulfill prophecy about the coming of God's Messiah, even in this, Jesus rode into town on a young donkey colt. If I were king, I don't think I'd ride into town on a young donkey coat. I'd be on the biggest, strongest, most mighty-looking thing that I could get on to show and strut who I was. This, Jesus, is a different kind of king. He came to die. He came to die for your sins and for mine. That's the gospel. On this Palm Sunday, I want us to rehearse the story of Jesus' death on the cross and reflect on the truth that we're going to see Jesus come to bear witness about. I want to just tell you at the outset, I'm not going to be expositing the text. I'm not going to dig in and, and work verse to verse with it, which means that there's going to be a lot of things about that's going on in these two chapters, and we're not going to cover this morning. What I want us to do is to hear the old, old story and worship our king. What I want us to do this morning, especially for the sake of those of you who are not believers, I want you to hear about this king, this different kind of king, so that you too might turn to him and be saved. Today, we're going to read some portions of chapters 18 and 19. I'm going to provide several summary statements just to walk us through the passage and help us get the gist of it. Then I'm going to offer some implications that deal with the gospel truths that come out of this passage and help us understand what the story means. First, let's look at the story and be reminded of it. Then let's think a little more deeply about it. And after that, we will use the Lord's Supper as a means for us in how we might respond to what we hear today. We want to start in the middle of chapter 18. It's a good on-ramp for us as we learn about this different sort of king. Pick up with me in verse 33. Chapter 18 of John, verse 33. This is his first conversation with Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it? To you about me. And Pilate answered flippantly, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. It's for this purpose that I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus does not refer to himself as a king in this particular text, but neither does he reject the title outright. Jesus didn't say, no, I'm not a king. His favorite way of referring to himself was as the son of man. And for those who, in his day, with knowledge of the Old Testament, they would recognize that title from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel reads, Daniel reads like this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus wasn't outright rejecting the notion of being a king. He did not call himself a king. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. This title expresses a very comprehensive truth about Jesus, that he is both human and he is the divine Messiah. It is him to whom God will give the world over for ruling and for reigning. Jesus is a king, but he is not the type of king that Pilate would recognize. That's why Pilate responded like he did. We carry on in the story in verse uh, 38. You probably have a break in your English Bible, so we pick up right after the break. After he had said this, after Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Again, we're just working our way through the text here, hopscotching a little bit, if you will. Pilate's offer to Jesus sounded very noble. It sounded very good, but it's mostly about self-preservation. Pilate's mostly watching out for himself. There's a context here. The Roman governors were assigned throughout the Roman Empire to protect Roman interests, to oversee the collection of revenue for Rome, and to keep the peace. That was their job. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. But he did not want the uprising, he didn't want some sort of uprising about from the Jewish people on his record. The sovereign die was cast here. A Roman cross already had Jesus' name on it. Pilate would negotiate with these Jewish religious leaders in vain. We come to chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Let that sink in for just a second. Chapter 18, verse 38. I find no guilt in him. Chapter 19, verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, he's going inside and outside here, back and forth. 
He's talking and dealing with Jesus inside. But when he wants to talk to the Jews, he comes outside. There's context there. We won't dig into that, but just to know, why is he back and forth? See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. We've just beaten him. We've just mocked him. But I find no guilt in him. Verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Jesus endures great pain and great shame, even as Pilate declares him innocent two more times. So in this very short span of time, Pilate declared Jesus innocent three separate times. But the accusers of Jesus would not let up. They were like sharks in the ocean. They had blood in the water, and they were circling for the kill. We get to verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. There was something working in Pilate. Something working in Pilate that told him, one, that there was something about Jesus that made him not guilty, and two, he was afraid for what might come up if he did not go forward with the execution. So he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Like a sheep that is led to slaughter, he was silent. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We won't won't deal with that very last part. It's probably a reference to Caiaphas. But I want us to note here, throughout the gospel account, John is reminding his readers... We listen to this. Throughout the gospel account, John is reminding his readers, nothing that is taking place is happening outside the will and the purpose of God. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Amazingly, and think about this from the gospel, amazingly, this this mockery of justice was part of God's plan. It was part of God's grand design so that we could be redeemed. Pastor Joshua read for us earlier in Psalm 22. These acts of cruelty and shame had been talked about and prophesied long before they occurred. We would find similar language in Isaiah 52 and 53. Don't you wonder at the why of it? I wonder at the why of it. Why? Why did it have to happen this way? Don't you wonder at the why of it? Why, why, Lord? Why did it have to happen this way? It's okay to wonder at the why of it. But we should not question God's wisdom in it. Pastor Chase has been teaching us, what right does the potter have to say, what right does the clay have to say to the potter? Who are you to tell me what to do with my design? God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than ours. We continue with the story in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, the irony in John's gospel is amazing, and it just, it's just dripping throughout this passage. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. <clears throat> Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and set him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. That was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Interesting. Interesting. Those who would hold to a law of the absolute monarchy of God himself have no king but Caesar. Pilate knew the charges against Jesus were empty, but he buckled to Jewish pressure. I think we can see in the account he's not blind to the injustice that's taking place here. He's blinded to being able to deal with it morally because he's concerned about his own self. I had a word pop up there that I shouldn't say. About his own self. The time of the day is mentioned. Did you see that? It was about the sixth hour. Why is that in there? It was in there because this was a preparation for Passover. John is writing for us in a very careful way here. The time of the day is mentioned to highlight the drama The Passover was about to begin. It was time to sacrifice the lambs. Religious leaders had played the Caesar card. Pilate knew there was no escape that would leave him safe, leave him untouched. He would be in trouble if he he let Jesus go and there was an uprising. And so in the end of verse 16, we read this. So Pilate, the beginning of verse 16. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And Jesus heads off to Golgotha. They took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Here comes more irony, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. This was not unusual, by the way. He wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. Anybody who would come through there in the most common languages that they would use would be able to read that sign and understand it. 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews, which he never did that I can tell anyway. And Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. Pilate wants to show the Jewish leaders that he is not without ultimate and final authority over the proceedings, and so he orders a sign placed on the cross. This sign is really Pilate's way of sort of easing his conscience a little bit and and a final way, if you will, for him to sort of stick a thumb in the eye of these Jewish religious leaders, the accusers of Jesus. If, in fact, they wanted Jesus executed... Because he made himself out to be a king in their eyes. Then Pilate wanted the public record to affirm that. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. After the soldiers crucified Jesus, they claimed his possessions. Jesus made plans for John to care for his mother. And we come down and we pick up again in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge 
full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In the remaining portions of the chapter, the Roman soldiers confirmed his death. There was a standard way for them to do that, to break the bones, to hasten it or to confirm it. They did not do that with Jesus. Again, to fulfill the scripture, we know what they did. They pierced his side instead. Blood and water came out. He's taken away and he's buried in an unused tomb. But he wouldn't need the tomb for long. The story is familiar. We know the story. Any of us who have been in church life or any length of time have heard the story any number of times. The story is familiar, but I hope it does not come commonplace in our hearts and minds. I hope the story of Jesus' betrayal and his trial and his crucifixion stirs your heart every time that you read it or hear it. I want to share now some implications to help us understand what the passage says about the truth that came to bear witness about. These will go up on the slide. I was um, wondering about whether or not I should put some things on the slide, but as one who was one of the loud clamoring of voices for Pastor Chase to do that, I thought to have integrity, maybe I ought to have some up on the slide for you today. Because I'm sure somebody would tell him and then he would get back at me about it and on we go. <clears throat> we'll leave these up through the Lord's Supper, brother, if we can. Okay. Implications about the gospel. Implication number one. Jesus' royal status. I'm going to may say this a little different than the slide. Jesus' royal status is not determined by whether or not you or I agree with it. Last week, in the sermon, we heard that Jesus, because Jesus went to the cross, God gave Jesus the name that is above every name, and probably the name Lord. This very act confirms for us the name, God giving Jesus this name confirms for us that Jesus is in fact a king. He is the one who rules his status does not hang on whether or not we agree with that. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul brings the title Lord and King together, where he refers to Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then if we go to the book of Revelation, the stories end, if you will, in chapter 17 and in chapter 19 on two separate occasions, using the language of victory and absolute dominion. We find these two titles coming together again, where Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is a king, but he's not a king like we're familiar with. He's not like the king of Asgard. Is this king, and is this king, King Jesus himself, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father? Jesus' royal status is not determined by whether or not we would agree to it. Implication number two. Jesus' perfect innocence is what made him a perfect sacrifice. Isn't it striking when we read the story? Now, we know it, and so we tend to just sort of move past it and, and not pay much attention to it, I think, sometimes, especially if we're just doing our sort of daily Bible reading. But isn't it fascinating and striking? Three times Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Three separate times he said that. This unwitting prophet helps us see that it is the perfect innocence of Jesus that makes him ultimately acceptable to God. 
This is the language of atonement. It's what's going on here. A perfect Jesus dying as a substitute for imperfect sinners like you and me. You see, God required a perfect, sinless sacrifice, a spotless lamb without blemish. Jesus was the only man that's ever walked on the earth that could fulfill that requirement. Pilate's personal verdict about Jesus was correct, even as his pronounced verdict sent Jesus to the cross. Implication number three. God is sovereign over the means of our redemption. The verdict seems unfair and it seems unkind, but God has chosen this means of reconciling the earth to himself. The punishment was cruel and it was sadistic. It was unwarranted and it was unjust in our eyes by any stretch of the imagination, even from someone who is not a follower of Christ, to know that this man did no wrong and yet to die that kind of death would seem unfair and unjust and inappropriate and just flat out wrong. Yet the scripture reminds us it was all part of God's plan. In Isaiah 53 we read it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In Colossians 1, verse 20, we read, It was through Jesus' death on the cross that God reconciled to himself all things, making peace with repentant sinners like you and me. How? Through the blood of the cross. And in Romans 3, a few weeks back, Pastor Chase showed us God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood so that this act was to show God's righteousness being in his divine forbearance as he passed over former sins, excuse me, this shows God's righteousness taking Jesus to the cross at the present time so that he might be both just in what he did and justifier for all who have faith in Christ. We cannot come to Christ. We cannot come before the throne of God as forgiven sinners unless Christ dies on the cross. That's the gospel. There's no other way. As cruel and as unfair and as sadistic and as hateful as it might be, God has ordained that as the means for our redemption. We cannot choose the way of our salvation. God has chosen it. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. Implication number four. The Bible declares that salvation is free to us. But it cost Jesus his very life. Salvation is free to us. But it cost Jesus his very life. Sanctification is not free. You're going to work if you're going to be sanctified. You're going to have to sweat, what Jerry Bridges calls holy sweat, if you're going to be sanctified. But that's not true for salvation. We repent of our sins and we trust in Christ and we are saved. That's what the Bible says. It cost us anything. It cost Christ everything. It cost him everything. The Bible declares that for us. The summary of these two chapters was this. Jesus endured such pain and such shame and even death so that you and I could be saved. Now, if Gary Yoakum were sitting over there, he'd say amen. That's right. <clears throat> but since he's standing up here, he'll say it. Amen. That's right. For those of you who are guests, that's a little inside baseball. <clears throat> he endured this pain and this shame. Hebrews 12 tells us for the joy that was set before him. We get that. In honoring God in such ways. But he endured it 
and even death on the cross so that you and I could be saved. I don't know about you, that's not very king-like in my way of thinking. But Jesus is not like any other king. He is rich, but for our sakes he became poor that we might become rich. He is without sin, but for our sakes he became sin that we through him might bear the righteousness of God. He is a sovereign savior who voluntarily and willingly and obediently became a suffering servant. Why in the world would this majestic king set aside all that he knew in eternal glory for undeserving sinners like you and me? I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I can't put that together. Except that, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the promise that God lays out for us in his word. Believe it and be saved. Reject it, and you cannot be saved. God demonstrates his love for us. This is why Jesus did what he did. Because God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know how many of you had New Year's resolutions. It's okay for a Christian to have New Year's resolutions. It's okay. I don't know how many of you made resolutions and how long they lasted. Some of you may still be full floor. And good for you if you are. I mean that rightly, if you've been able to resolve certain times of the year, help us deal with those things. Good for you if your resolutions are carrying you forward in some area of growth. But I know that if we made resolutions to be enough righteous to be before God, none of us would make it. No matter how hard we resolved and how faithful we tried, there is none who are righteous, no, not one. We cannot keep lists of do's and don'ts. That's why there's a new covenant. That's why there's the blood of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Implication five. That's the truth that Jesus came to bear witness about. And it is that truth that reveals why this different kind of king matters to you and to me. If you are not a follower of Christ this morning, I'm pleading with you to listen carefully. I'm pleading with you to let your heart be open to what the Word of God may be trying to do in the life of your heart right now. I'm pleading with you not out of stubbornness or a hardened heart to push this away. You may have heard it any number of times. I'm pleading with you that today might be the day when you would receive it. Listen carefully to why King Jesus matters to you. And if your heart is stirred by what you hear, I would love to talk with you more after the service. If that would be uncomfortable for you, if you sense God is speaking to you, let me say it this way. Please do not leave without talking to someone about that. Please don't do that. Here's why this king matters. By this king's betrayal, you and I can be rescued from the cunning lies of Satan. Because of this king's arrest, you and I can be redeemed from the courts of God's judgment. Because this king faced an unjust trial, you and I can be ransomed from the cost of our sin. Because this king died, you and I can be released from the chains of hell. 
Because this king will be resurrected, is resurrected, you and I can receive the crown of life. There you go. It's not that hard. Say amen. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him, that is, whoever repents and believes that God is who He says He is and does what He says He will do for your salvation, whoever believes in Him will not die separated from God, but will live and have eternal life with God in heaven forever. That's why this different kind of king matters to us. This is how King Jesus rules in his kingdom. With love and forgiveness and sacrifice, even to death on a cross. I want to pray for us. and After that, we'll turn our thoughts and hearts to the Lord's table. And as I do that, I want you to use the supper this morning as a time for how you might respond to this passage. The music team wants to come forward now. That would be good. As you're thinking, as you're singing and you're reflecting, use this time to reflect on God's goodness if you're a follower of Christ. Let me pray. Father, Jesus is a different kind of king. We usually don't think about him in, in those sorts of terms. We, we sing songs about King Jesus. But we don't always think about Jesus in the terms of what it means to be a king. It's, it's somewhat foreign to our nature as American citizens <clears throat> to think of royalty and their authority and their edicts and their decrees. Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a king who did not wait for loyal subjects to come to him to do something for them. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He is a king who did not collect the taxes and the fees due from his subjects so that he could be pleased with them. He is a king who became poor, that we might be rich. Jesus is a different kind of king. A king who died for our sins so that we might have everlasting life with you. A king who rose again so that in his resurrection we too might have the promise and the hope of resurrection in heaven forever. It is this Jesus, it is this king that we come before you to worship this morning. Thank you, Father, for King Jesus. Amen.